0: Good afternoon everyone, having um, a couple of readings from a few different passages today. The first two will be from Numbers um, and the third one will be from the book of Acts. So the first reading will be taken from Numbers chapter 1 verses 1 to 3. The Lord spoke to Moses in the tent of meeting in the desert of Sinai on the first day of the second month of the second year after the Israelites came out of Egypt. He said, Take a census of the whole Israelite community by their clans and families, listing every man by name, one by one. You and Aaron are to count according to their divisions all the men in Israel who are 20 years old or more and able to serve in the army. The second reading is again from Numbers, but this time in chapter 10. And... We'll be reading from verses 11 to 36. On the 20th day of the second month of the second year, the cloud lifted from above the tabernacle of of the covenant law. Then the Israelites set out from the desert of Sinai and traveled from place to place until the cloud came to rest in the desert of Paran. They set out, this first time, at the Lord's command through Moses. The divisions of the camp of Judah went first, under their standard. Nashon, son of Aminadab, was in command. Nethanel, son of Zor, was over the division of the tribe of Issachar. And Eliab, son of Helon, was over the division of the tribe of Zebulun. Then the tabernacle was taken down, and the Gershonites and Merorites who carried it set out. The divisions of the camp of Reuben went next, under their standard. Eleazar, son of Shedo, was in command. Shalumiel, son of Zer- Zerushaddai, was over the division of the tribe of Simeon. And Eliasaph, son of Duel, was over the division of the tribe of Gad. Then the Kohathites set out carrying the holy things. The tabernacle was to be set up before they arrived. The divisions of the camp of Ephraim went next under their standard. Elishama, son of Amihud, was in command. Gamaliel, son of Pedazur, was over the, tribe of, over the division of the tribe of Man- Manasseh. And Abidan, son of Gideonai, was over the division of the tribe of Benjamin. Finally, as the rear guard for all the units, the divisions of the camp of Dan set out under their standard. Ahazer, son of Amishadai, was in command. Padiel, son of Ochran, was over the division of the tribe of Asher. And Ahirah, son of Enan, was over the division of the tribe of Naphtali. This was the order of the march for the Israelite divisions as they set out. Now Moses said to Hobab, son of Ruel, the Midianite, Moses' father-in-law, we are setting out for the place about which the Lord said, I will give to you. Come with us, and we will treat you well, for the Lord has promised good things to Israel. He answered, No, I will not go. I am going back to my own land and my own people. But Moses said, Please do not leave us. You know where we should camp in the wilderness, and you can be our eyes. If you come with us, we will share with you whatever good things the Lord gives us. So they set out from the mountain of the Lord and traveled for three days. The ark of the covenant of the Lord went before them during those three days to find them a place to rest. The cloud of the Lord was over them by day when they set out from the camp. Whenever the ark set out, Moses said, rise up, Lord, may your enemies be scattered, may your foes flee before you. Whenever it came to rest, he said, return, Lord, to the countless thousands of Israel. And our final reading um, will be from the book of Acts, chapter one, verses one to nine. In my former book, Theophilus, I wrote about all that Jesus began to do and to teach until the day he was taken up to heaven after giving instructions through the Holy Spirit to the apostles he had chosen. After his suffering, he presented himself to them and gave them many convincing proofs that he was alive. are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, it is not for you to know the times or dates the father has set by his own authority, but you will receive power when the spirit comes on you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. After he said this, he was taken up before their very eyes and a cloud hid him from their sight. This is the word of the Lord.
1: At some point in the centuries after uh, Jesus was teaching, having his ministry, in the first early centuries of the first millennium, uh, someone was reading the fourth book of the Bible. And they thought to themselves, gosh, there's a lot of numbering going on in this book. Two censuses taken at the beginning, one at the end. We really ought to call this book Numbers. Whoever that was, um, was not a marketing person or in sales in any way because it was a horrible idea. (laughs) While factually true about the numbering, um, ever since, the book of Numbers has been sadly unrepresented. And I think largely because who wants to read a book about math, even a biblical one? It's a shame because centuries earlier than that day, what long before Jesus was alive and doing his ministry, the ancient Hebrews called this book something very different. It went in terms of the order of the Bible Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, and In the Wilderness. How much more evocative is that? Who doesn't want to read a book called In the Wilderness? It makes you ask questions What happens in the wilderness? What wilderness? How far does it go? Who would go into such a place? That's a book I want to read. And so for this series, at least, even though we've titled it Numbers, remember, it's actually called In the Wilderness. There's something about the idea of wilderness that sparks our imagination. It's the topic of books and plays and poems. It evokes all kind of curiosity and questions Is the wilderness a land of adventure and great feats of survival? Or is it a place of just stark, raw beauty? Maybe it's a place of danger. Perhaps in your mind it's a place of desolation and hopelessness. Or maybe for some it's a place of transition. It's a waypoint as you move from one place to another, perhaps before entering a promised land. Well, in Numbers, in in the wilderness, the wilderness is all of those things and more. See, the people of Israel have come a long way since the book of Exodus. Do you remember? They were enslaved in the land of Egypt under the thumb of a cruel pharaoh. But they escaped under the mighty hand of God amongst great miracles and acts of his mercy and judgment on the Egyptians they escape through the red sea for the famous parting of it and Moses leads them out and where they come after a little bit of a journey to come to mount sinai incredibly important place in the biblical story there at the foot of this mountain they receive the offer from god to be in covenant with him to be people of his promise, that he would be their God and they would be his people, if only they would follow him and worship him and trust him alone above all other gods. And there they received the law. The famous Ten Commandments are its summary. The law makes clear that God is holier than they could ever imagine, and they are more sinful than they ever considered. And so, despite it being clearly good for them, they struggle to obey it almost immediately. And that leads us actually into the book of Leviticus. How can this sinful, broken people live with a holy God without being destroyed? And so he gives them the sacrificial system, this, this idea that their sin could be placed not on them but on a third party, on an innocent animal, and that an innocent animal's purity would be passed to them. And so they are made holy and clean before God, and they can continue to live in his presence. And so by the time we get to Numbers, they've been at the foot of this great mountain of Sinai, being conceived as a new nation for about a year. And now finally they are setting out from the mountain, northeast towards Canaan, the promised land. And what lies before them and before they get to Canaan is this great, endless scrub and desert, this wilderness area. And it's these desert wanderings that will be pivotal in the life of this people and in the storyline of the Bible. It will be referred back to over and over again because it's here in the wilderness that they learn what it really means to trust God. What it really means to worship him. What it really means to be faithful to him, even as he is faithful to them. What it really means to come under him as their great covenant king. It's here that they'll learn that even in the wilderness, even in the midst of their own sin and brokenness and unfaithfulness, God will be faithful to them. He will give them grace in the wilderness. Even in their darkest hour. And so in numbers uh, chapter 10, we just heard read. This is their setting out. Why is in chapter 10? Not chapter one? I'll tell you in a second. But let's read from verse 11 again. On the 20th day of the second month of the second year, The cloud lifted from above the tabernacle of the covenant law. Remember, this is the tent of meeting that stands in the midst of the Israelite camp where God dwelt, and the cloud of his presence dwells over it. And then the Israelites set out from the desert of Sinai and traveled from place to place until the cloud came to rest in the desert of Paran. They set out this first time at the Lord's command through Moses. So here they set out finally after a year of preparation, not full of trepidation and fear, but confident, courageous, excited for where God is leading them. As they enter into the wilderness, um, from our vantage point, we see this is a very important time because this idea of wilderness will be repeated in the biblical story over and over and over and over again through the rest of the history books, into the Psalms, a lot of times in the Prophets, and into the New Testament in the Gospels and the Epistles. Over and over again, the biblical writers will say this wilderness is a tipping point. This is a moment of transition and change for God's people. And it is not just uh, a physical place, but actually has spiritual significance that would be ongoing and relevant for God's people. The wilderness for us is not just a literal wilderness that was traversed by the Israelites, but has a spiritual reality to it. A spiritual reality. And that spirituality can take four different forms in the Bible. Sometimes it's the wilderness is um, a time of external hardship, challenge and survival. Sometimes it's a time of internal spiritual dryness, of feeling far from God, spiritually dry. Sometimes it's a time of testing, a time when people, uh, people's measures are tested and uh, considered, where we find out what people are really made of, a time of refining and clarifying And sometimes it's a time when God comes and speaks to his people about himself in a new and clear way. So, a time of external hardship, a time of internal spiritual dryness, a time of testing, and a time when God speaks. Perhaps one of those resonates with you more than the others at this moment in your life. Because we all go through wilderness seasons, We go through them as individuals, as families, as churches. Even whole societies go through times of wilderness. Just think about uh, the last few years. The the pandemic was a a wilderness time. For a lot of us, it was a time when energy was sapped away, (laughs) when anxiety was riding high. When our all sense of enthusiasm and optimism for the future was dampened. And the lockdowns may have ended in 2021, but even in 2022, we were kind of dazed and confused, coming out and trying to assess this new reality, unsure of what to think or feel, unsure of what was coming next, of what life should or would or could look like. So there's the kind of COVID wilderness. There's also... For Christians, at least, kind of a cultural wilderness moment when increasingly in our society um, Christianity is seen not merely as a neutral curiosity but sometimes dangerous, maybe unfit for society. Even here in the West, we've found ourselves in wilderness times, we've found it. Hard, especially since COVID, to kind of rebuild our own energy as a community and to figure out what is our place. Even trying to find a, a, a physical place to meet, and we're blessed to have St. Stephen's, but a place to call our own that's home for us. Moving from the rec center to the uh the, the Catholic's garden out the front and out the front here into this garden to this place, it is just, you know, it's tiring. And actually, in the grand scheme of things, as we wait for Jesus to come back, every moment is wilderness. Because the Bible makes it clear that the only true promised land is the new heaven and new earth that Jesus will recreate one day. And so in the meantime, every moment is a wilderness moment. Not to say there aren't many promised lands along the way, times of when God mercifully gives us rest and respite. But in the grand scheme of things, we continue to wander so wilderness and the counterpoint, promised land, are important symbols for us. They, they help us make sense of life. They help us recognize, okay, this is the position we're in. This is where we are. Wilderness times are hard. There's difficulty about them. There's struggle. And yet there's also, it's not just a negative thing, it's a positive thing as well, because the wilderness time is a time to grow and change and be sharpened. They seem long, but they're always temporary. They seem to be when God is furthest away, but actually it's the times when he is closest. And the wilderness times should also carry with it a sense of adventure, of wonder, of excitement, because it's new. The journey ahead is one that carries with it a sense of anticipation for what's next. And we know that if we can traverse it successfully, we'll all be richer for it. And even now, I think, as we come into this year, and as we come to the second half of the year, um, and a number of people have recognised this, there, there's maybe, after the COVID years, a new sense of anticipation, new sense of a little bit of enthusiasm, a little bit of optimism for the future. Even watching uh, the Matildas win last night. What a moment! 50,000 people in, in the Brisbane Stadium roaring with hope and anticipation for what's next. Maybe, just maybe, there's a sense, not that we're coming into a promised land necessarily, but that we've regained a sense that what's next might be really good. But maybe you don't feel like that. Maybe you're just as anxious about what's around the corner because it's unknown and that is terrifying. But either way, as we set out into what's next, the book of Numbers makes us ask the question, how should we feel about it? Not not just how we do feel about it, but how should we feel about it? And how could we feel that way? Certainly, we shouldn't be naive because it's true that the, the greatest challenges might be around the corner. The pandemic may be over in some sense, but who knows what's next? We don't. But wherever we're coming into a time of greater challenge or or into a time of rest and respite, God invites us to march out to meet these, uh, whatever happens willingly with our head held high. Because the Israelites had good reason to march out with optimism and hope, and they do. And there's a good reason why we as Christians can feel the same way as we head out into our future. Why should we feel that way? And most importantly, how can we feel that way? As they marched out with optimism and hope, how can we access those kinds of feelings as well, even if we are tired and anxious and fearful and uncertain? Well, one thing is for sure is that as the Israelites marched out, they marched out for good reason. They marched out because Moses led them, and Moses was God's person, God's prophet, God's leader, and so God led them. And so there were four things that they knew to be the case. And these four things can also help us be filled with a reasonable amount of optimism and assurance. Um, The first one is that God's promises are dependable. God's promises are dependable. Numbers uh, chapter 1 is an account of the first census that God tells Moses to make of every man in the nation of israel and so and this is why it's called the book of numbers Uh, now god didn't ask this because he was creating his own uh, bureau of statistics it's not the kind of census he was doing he's not kind of doing demographics no he's got a very good reason for doing it Uh, he's doing it because he wants israelite to know as they set out that he is a god of his promise what promise? The one he made to Abraham back in chapter 15 of Genesis. When God took Abraham outside, remember, and showed him the stars of the sky arrayed out before him. And he said, "If Look up the sky, Abraham, and count the stars, if indeed you can count them. And he said to Abraham, So shall your offspring be. At that point, Abraham was one man and his wife Sarah. Now, several generations later, Israel is a nation of 603,550 men. And then you add on women and children on top of that. So God has been faithful to his promise. He promised Abraham he would be the father of a great nation. He has become that. He can be trusted to follow through on his promise because he was faithful to Abraham. He will be faithful to Israel and he is faithful to us. Israel could trust him that he would love them as a father and rule them as a king and protect them as a warrior, and that through them, the rest of Abraham's promise would come true, that they would be a blessing and that they would bless the nations. God fulfills his promise to bring a king and a leader, ultimately named Jesus, who would bring people out of spiritual slavery to sin and idolatry, and to create around them, Uh, a kingdom of God where God's reign is loved and obeyed, where people are given a new identity and a new hope and be established with a new inheritance of a new land, the the land of the new creation and and the new earth. And so the promise to Abraham has taken on a new dimension greater than even Israel could have dreamed. The church of God, countless millions of people who love and follow Jesus... Brought through every conceivable challenge. And so, even as we just look around here, the few that we are in this building, we look around, we should say, God is faithful to his promises because every one of us is a miracle of his grace, bound together in hope and love, and given a new identity, not just as people, but as a community, as his church, his beloved. And so have you ever considered how mammoth that is that God's faithfulness has extended through thousands of years to this very day to us here and so the first thing that uh, Israel and us can learn is that God is dependable he's faithful to his promises and the second uh, thing is that God's presence is constant in uh, numbers chapter two to three um, we see the uh, israel uh, camped around the tabernacle. You can kind of see an illustration there. You've got the tabernacle, the, the, the place of God's presence in the middle, and around it, the Levites, the priests of God, and then around that, three, six, nine, twelve, 6, the uh, 12, um, the tribes of Israel. This wasn't just an efficient way of making camp. There's a theological truth to this, that God is in their midst, that the holy God dwells in the middle of them, at their core, and then Numbers 9, um, we see that the cloud of presence envelops the, the tabernacle by day and a fiery pillar by night so that every single man, woman, child in the whole nation of Israel could see without a doubt that God is with us, that he hasn't left us. His presence is here. And so then even as they move ahead, the cloud goes with them. Every step of the journey, a physical tangible reminder, God is here, and he is for us. He is protecting and guiding us. And for Christians, uh, that reality hasn't changed. In fact, it's got better. God's promises still go with us, but we don't need a tent for him to dwell in or a cloud. We have the Holy Spirit living in us. Jesus is called Emmanuel, God with us, and he dwells within us through his Spirit. So when we stop, he stops with us. When we move, he leads and guides us. And the Spirit points us back over and over again to his word and says, which assures us and gives us confidence and hope that there is never a moment when we're alone, not even for a second. And the third thing that uh, they learn as they're going out is that God's power is supreme. Uh, in the passage we heard read, what goes at the head of them The Ark of the Covenant, this symbol, powerful symbol of God's, not just his presence, but his power. And throughout the story, the Ark is present every time God brings victory against their enemies, anyone who rises up against them. This is such a powerful thing that it even uh, penetrates into our modern pop culture with Indiana Jones and the Raiders of the Lost Ark. Again, even people who are outside the church can see this as a symbol of immense power, and it's true. And the ark is long gone, or perhaps stored in a warehouse somewhere in America. But apart from that, it's long gone. But something greater has come. The same power that raised Jesus from the dead is alive and at work in us by his Holy Spirit, so that every enemy has been defeated. And even though they still, uh, the enemies of sin and death and Satan, still rear their ugly heads like mortally wounded animals, and yet we need not fear them because their time is coming to an end. So God's power is supreme, and finally, God's people are equipped. Israel, coming out of Sinai, every single tribe was the size of a small town. So they could have gone, great, thanks everyone, uh, Judah will go this way, and Issachar will go this way, and Gad will go this way, we'll split up. And but they don't, they stay together. Why? Because throughout the, um, the story, it's made clear that every single one of them has a uniquely uh, a unique strength that they add to the whole. They're not all the same. They each have their own gifts and abilities. And so together they are fully equipped for every challenge that they'll find along the way in the wilderness. So they say, we can't go our own way now. We have to go together. This set of relationships, this family, is so important. It has such priority that... For them, it will define their their very existence, that they are the nation of Israel, one united under one God. We even see this a little bit on how God will grow them in anything that they lack. Moses' brother-in-law, Hobab, which I imagine is kind of like Bear Grylls. He's a skilled wilderness survival expert. And Moses recognizes that immediately. He says, you've got to go with us. Because you know the terrain. You know where to find water. You know where the best place to camp and stop is. You've got to come. he goes, oh, I don't know. He goes, yeah, yeah, you've got to come. You've got to come. You'll you'll experience the great benefits and blessings of God with us. And he goes, oh, all right. And he goes with them. I think we get the sense as as we think about us as a church and even the church of our city uh, that God gives us what we need. Every single one of us, every single member of Inner West, and by extension Grasslands as well, uh, bring with them a set of gifts and abilities and aspects and attitudes that together make a community, a family, where we're fully equipped for every good work and for every challenge along the way. And actually, God will add to our number. And the way people come along will say, come with us. And we need your help. We need your gifts and we can bless each other. So, with these four things embedded deep in our hearts, there's every reason to move ahead. Not naively, not kind of overly triumphant as if there's going to be no problems along the way, but definitely with a sense of hope and a sense of optimism. Of course, that's a theory. What about reality? Um, I was reminded uh, this week of the great book and movie, Into the Wild, I don't know if you've seen it. It was very popular when it came out. It's the story of a uh, young man, Chris McCandless. And he um, was a young man who just got sick of society, decided to go out into the Alaskan wilderness. He had immense enthusiasm and passion and conviction. This was the life he wanted to lead. But unfortunately, very little skills in um, survival in the wilderness. Uh, And yet, at the beginning at least, it it feels like this is the great um, modern adventurer. He's the lone hero, living off the land, free from the constraints of society, forging his own identity and his own path. But it turns tragic as the story progresses. He makes mistakes. He kills a moose for food but can't preserve its meat. His supplies dwindle and he realises that the wilderness is harsh and desolate. Eventually he decides, oh, maybe I should go back, but the river that he crosses now overflowed and he can't return. Out of desperation, he finds some berries that he thinks are safe, given his reading and research, but they're not. They're poisonous and he sadly just dies alone. A lot of people have been fascinated by his story and tried to unpack it, understand what's going on there. And people have wondered what went wrong. Or, to apply it to our lives, what are ways people ill-prepare for wilderness seasons? Well, modern people, when, they, when they're approaching times of challenge, they tend to, do, uh, tend to rely on a few different things. Uh, they rely on their own skills and resources that they built up. They rely on a bit of good luck, perhaps good karma. They rely on help and assistance from friends, relatives, the government. And, so, and people often come into challenging periods, either feeling overconfident, and so when things don't work out, are easily broken, or over anxious and so have no assurance about anything. And a full of fear. And so people often find themselves, if not destroyed by the wilderness, then at least severely, severely wounded. Christians fall into the same kinds of traps. Going into times of hardship, we forget the dependability of God's promises and we downplay God's power, minimize the importance of God's people. And we want to go it alone. There's something deep within us and I think in the story of Into the Wild we saw the same, was this deep desire that I want to make it on by myself on my own terms under my own steam. And the result is wounding, pain, defeat. Maybe not uh, in a life-ending kind of way like with Chris McCandless but at least in a way that really diminishes uh, the kind of life that we really want to lead. Now we know there's an adventure ahead and God wants to step forward towards the promised land. And we know that the wilderness can be a time of, of training and, and, uh, and forming, a time where good things can happen. But what is it that can overcome this, this tendency inside to say, I'm going to do this myself? What can we do? Well, this, the theme of wilderness is, is brought forward into the New Testament over and over again. It's, it's just all the way through. And the writers of the Gospels uh, take pains to show us that the only way, that there is only one way to not just survive the wilderness, but thrive there. Not just get through it, but actually be formed through it. And it starts even at the beginning of Matthew's Gospel. Matthew chapter 4, what happens? Straight away after Jesus' baptism, He's driven out into the wilderness for 40 days by the Spirit. And there he is tempted. There he is tested. But the wilderness doesn't crush him. It forms him. It prepares him. And the very next thing is he starts his ministry. And we know what happens after that. And even then, uh, this is a foretaste, right? Because when we get to the cross, This is a picture of spiritual desolation, a wilderness in in the spiritual realm, as well as the physical realm, as Jesus hangs alone, empty, naked, desolate on the cross. And yet even that doesn't crush him, because then he rises again three days later. So wilderness is followed by resurrection. Resurrection. And then Acts chapter 1, which we heard read before so well by Sarah, is such an important, it's much more important actually than most of us think. It's the story of Jesus' ascension, right? He spent uh, some time with his disciples after his resurrection. He's about to be taken up into heaven. And it's a little detail, but it says, as he was taken up, he rose up into the sky and then a cloud hit him. And for a long time I just thought, oh well, it's just a passing meteorological event, just a way of saying he rose up and then yeah, a cloud took him from view, but I actually think there's more to it than that, because every time God and clouds appears in the Bible, what's it trying to say? We just saw it in numbers god's presence, Jesus is enveloped by the cloud of god's presence, and in case that wasn't any more clear, what happens next in chapter two as the his disciples, his followers gather together pillars of fire fall down, tongues of fire come down and, and rest over each one. They, they go together. What's he trying to say? Is that like, Jesus is God. Jesus is, the, uh, is within the cloud of God's presence. Jesus is God. But then the very cloud, which is fire by night, comes and rests on believers. So the wilderness didn't just crush Jesus. It brought him... Into the place of God. And the wilderness doesn't crush believers. it brings us through because we have God's presence with us. and the, so the promised land is, is assured for us because you know because of our sin and unbelief, we find ourselves in wilderness times and we're tested and, and it's hard and it's difficult and we want to go it alone. But every time for a believer, we're, we're looking back to the person of Jesus and go, Ah, oh, Jesus, Jesus' story is my story. On the cross, he's united me with him. His destiny is my destiny. The wilderness didn't defeat him, and in him, in his power and strength, neither will it defeat me. The wilderness formed him for ministry, and in his power and strength, so will form me. Jesus went through to the promised land and ascended into the glory of heaven, and in his power and strength, so will we. And so the the wilderness need not be a place of fear and trepidation for us. It can be a place of anticipation and excitement, measured with good wisdom, because Jesus has gone before us. And we don't just follow in his footsteps, but he goes with us because his spirit is with us. And so we can say with Moses um, at the very end of chapter 10, we can say the same thing with Moses Rise up, Lord Jesus. May your enemies be scattered. May your foes flee before you. And whenever we find times of rest, times of many promised lands, we can say with Moses, return Lord Jesus, remain with us and to the countless thousands of your people. So as we journey into numbers with the Israelites and as we discover more about what will be the great Struggles and temptations and trials of the wilderness for them and for us, this is what we can continue to say. Rise up, Lord Jesus. Fight for us and return to us and rest with us and remain with us in all things as we have faith in him. Uh, let's pray then. I'll hand to Kirsten. Heavenly Father, um, we thank you so much that you have gone before us and you have gone behind us, and you've gone with us, and you go in us. Because of your Holy Spirit, you are always with us. We don't know what's ahead, but we can go forward, Father, with confidence, knowing that your power and your presence and your people are steadfast and sure. And so, Father, give us all that we need. Prepare us for the journey and equip us for every good work as we consider, Father, what it looks like to be faithful to you, just as you have been faithful to us. And as we traverse the wilderness and we long, Lord, for the promised land, when we will come into all the blessings that you have for us. Amen.